Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Did the Rendlesham Forest UFO incidents go beyond December 1980? How do witnesses react to situations like that? What can paranormal experiences do to your life in the long run? Hello and welcome to the uh, 862nd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben and those long-term questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures and dad, Paul. And today we welcome an experiencer and new author who is familiar to our listeners. And we also welcome your calls today. The number is 401-766-1240. That's from anywhere. Or email paul at behindtheparanormal.com or contact us via uh, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Wow, I don't know why. I forgot what social media was. Uh, All right. Uh, Steve LaPlume has not led the usual boring life. A native of Lemonster, Massachusetts, he is a U.S. US Air Force veteran uh, who was present during the famous 1980 Rendlesham Forest UFO incidents in England. He first appeared on this show over 10 years ago when we did a lengthy series of shows about that case on CBS Radio and Achieve Radio. Today, Steve is one of our regular guest co-hosts, and he sometimes works with Ben and I on flap cases. Flap area cases. After leaving the Air Force, Steve worked as a professional soldier for hire. He went on to become a husband and father of two girls while working in project management. Living in China for nine years, he worked as an actor in two movies, two TV series, and several commercials. He also was a bodyguard, often for American singers in China to do concerts. And he raced superbike motorcycles. I don't know what that is, but it sounds pretty uh, pretty fast. Sounds pretty super to me. Uh, Steve takes us on that journey <clears throat> in his brand new book just out this week, Rendlesham to, Re- Rendlesham to Redemption, A Story of Transformation. Today, Steve is home in New England, living in dear old New Hampshire. Ah, yes. Uh, Steve LaPlume, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's great to have you back with us. So let's uh, let, let's just kind of jump right into brass tacks here. Well, it's two different uh, metaphors. Anyway, uh, Steve, briefly outline the Rendlesham Forest incident and the part that you played. Sure. Um, well, on your intro, you said that I was present during the Rendlesham Forest incident, you know, the 1980 um, incident and sightings that they had. But I was on base, but I wasn't present during those right. encounters. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I outline that in my book and detail that out. Um, so my sighting was actually about a month later, almost to the day. It was around the 27th of January. I actually went back and looked at an old calendar and counted the days, how many shifts I worked, and about what day it was, you know, and what shift I was on. So it was about the 27th of January, 1981. And, um, and you know, when the first incident happened in December, we didn't have any... Uh, real clue of what happened you know we knew that some guys got chased by a ufo in the woods and then it was quiet after that we never heard any details or anything so um so when uh airman palmer and i had our sighting we were really clueless and um as to why there was such a reaction that happened and what happened was um we would go to the east gate on the night shift and we would check it every now and then make sure that you know nobody had breached the gate and um uh, just normal security, you know, stuff. 
and it was kind of a boring night, so we were outside the vehicle, kind of leaned up against the vehicle talking and stuff, and um, in the southern sky, all of a sudden, there was this this light that looked like a satellite, and it was just moving across. Hopefully, people see me on video. They can see this. Uh, it was moving across the screen from uh, right to left, um, the sky, excuse me, and um, it suddenly started pulsating, and the only thing I can equate it to is like a heartbeat monitor where it just jumps up and down, you know, and it started doing some acrobats. <laughs> um, nothing I've ever seen a plane do, you know, even since. You know, it's been 40 years. I've never seen a vehicle or a plane, anything that could do what this thing was doing. And uh, and it went over to the left, and it got kind of over near the woods, and it got lost behind a cloud. It was just a partly cloudy night. So it wasn't like it was a big event at that point. Um, all we saw was, like I said, a light in the sky. But, boy, when we called it in, it sure hit the fan. Um, Palmer called it in, and he kind of threw me under the bus. He, he got in touch with Central Security Control and said, Hey, La Plume just saw a UFO. So <laughs> he didn't mention himself. Um, <laughs> Actually, we're going to put that uh, sketch up on the, on the screen here for those who are watching uh, the video. Uh, oh. So uh, uh, go ahead, Steve. Okay, so um, the sketch is actually uh, the second part of our sighting. Yeah. Uh, so the first sighting happened as soon as, as soon as you know word got okay. I saw a UFO. Then the phone rang. Uh, it was Lieutenant England, who was my shift commander, and he uh, asked me what I saw. I said, "Okay, stay there. Somebody will be there." And I, it wasn't 15 minutes later, maybe at the most, 20 at the most, that um, Colonel Halt showed up in his little uh, TR8 Triumph. Uh, which is small enough to fit under the gate, actually, a <laughs> small little car. And I think he actually went across the runway. He got permission to go across the runway to get there from base housing. Or, but um, So he showed up. He asked what was going on. And then the next thing you know, there was officers showing up all over the place. Um, Lieutenant England finally showed up um, as he was my uh, immediate you know, supervisor, shift, shift supervisor. He, uh, he, you know, asked what I saw, said, okay, you know, uh, Colonel Williams will be out here. He's going to ask you what he saw. And Colonel Williams was the uh, wing commander. And he said, oh, by the way, don't be nervous because uh, he just made general last week. Yeah. So it was general. So, okay, so here I am, this little snot-nosed 18-year-old kid, you know, with two stripes on my arms and all this brass around me. It was a little intimidating, to say the least. <laughs> and uh, uh, he showed up, and he was generally concerned with what was going on, what did I see, okay. But then they all got in a, uh, an Air Force station wagon, and uh, they left a starlight scope with us, and they said, you know, if you see nothing, let us know. And they all took off into the woods, which um, Palmer and I were kind of scratching our heads. We didn't really understand, or at least I didn't understand, why they would go into the woods. It was up in the sky in the clouds. It was nothing out in the forest, you know. But again, we had no idea what happened, you know, during December. So, um, so after about 40 minutes or so, they came back. Um, and I talked with Colonel Holt recently, and he said that they went out there, they didn't see anything, they you know, were satisfied, everything was secure, and they came back. It was basically the gist of their, their little visit out to the woods. And uh, they posted me on the gate the rest of the night, which usually isn't manned, um, but they posted me there the rest of the night, so I had to stay at the east gate, which is kind of a creepy gate. <laughs> yeah, I know, I've been there. Yeah, during, yeah I, but during, the, during the time, there was a lot. There was a clear cut. There was a big area behind the guard shack that was open for a free fire zone, so we could see people coming and shoot and have a clear, fi- you know, field of fire. So it, it's a little less creepy, you know, because I've seen recent pictures and it's all overgrown. It looks pretty oh yeah, harsh. yeah. But um, so uh, so I never really stayed in that little guard shack because you had your back to the forest. 
So I would go up against what we call the blast wall, where um, when the planes were on the runway, they would go up and take a left, and their exhaust would come across the road. So they built the blast wall so the you know the plane's exhaust wouldn't you know hinder traffic or endanger people. So I sat up there, and about an hour later, um, Palmer came back to check on me, and we were sitting there again, just talking, leaning up against the vehicle. And uh, we, you know, when, when you're on that gate, after a while, you can tell where the uh, the flight pattern is and when planes are coming in for a landing. So we saw a light coming in, and we figured it was probably the C-130 that was uh, up, and that it was coming in to land. But it, it was over to the right of the where the normal flight path would be, and it seemed a little odd. So um, that's where the second picture, uh, that picture that you're talking about, that's our second sighting. Um, I'll, I'll, so, let me just interrupt to just say people have, uh, most of the people are not seeing the video. You can go stop. to behindtheparanormal.com, uh, and click on talking points pages, click on 2020, it's right at the top, for, just for those of you who want to look at the picture. I'm sorry, go ahead, Steve. Oh, sure, no problem. So, um, so we saw this light, you know, just like a regular plane coming in, had a landing light on, it was no big deal, but, but the issue was it was to the right, and like I said, after a while, you know, you know the patterns and stuff, and so it seemed a little odd. And, uh, when the plane was coming in, or the vehicle, I thought it was a plane, um, but it was, what do they call them now, unmanned aerial vehicles? Yeah. <laughs> well, when this vehicle was coming in, um, it was over the treetops, and it wasn't that far over the treetops. I, I'm going to say it, at most it was a 1,000 feet off off the deck, you know. And uh, it came in over the treetops, and it came up the access road uh, to the east gate, and as soon as it cleared the trees, it was like my sense of reality really changed a lot. Um, I ha- suddenly I had tunnel vision. Um, I didn't hear anything. I couldn't hear Palmer if he was talking to me. I didn't hear a word he said. And uh, I was just staring at this thing. And it was as it was coming in, it seemed like it was long and um, uh, cylindrical shape, like cigar shaped. And it had a bit of a cloud around it. And um, again, I was just real tunnel vision. And when it was about halfway up the road, I, from that point to being over my head, I don't remember. I don't know if it got there quick or what the scoop was, but all of a sudden it was halfway up the road, and the next thing you know, it was over my head, and I was craning my neck backwards looking up at it. I had my M16 shouldered and never thought to unshoulder my weapon and shoot at it. It wasn't a threat that I could perceive. and uh, But it was definitely a craft. I looked up at it, and um, it was a structured craft. And it had some lights around it, but the lights were in my peripheral, and when it was over me, it seemed like it was round and it wasn't cigar-shaped anymore. And I, I don't know why. Um, but it had some yellow, green, and a, and a blue light. And again, it was soft light and it was in my peripheral vision. And what I was looking up at, though, it seemed like it was a hatch. And I, I'm saying a hatch because I can't really render what else it would have been. But it was like a square inside of a square inside of a square, getting smaller. And... Um, and I remember looking up at it and thinking, wow, Steve, this is going to be the greatest thing you ever saw in your life. Suck it up. So I, I tried to get as much detail as I could. And um, after just, I, I don't think this thing was over our head maybe 15, 20 seconds. Um, it started veering off to the right, which was, again, to the southern sky, and just slowly climbed up into the sky and um blended in with the stars but i have an issue with the fact that it was over my head at one point and the next second or the next memory i have is it was to the right and it wasn't a craft anymore as much as it was just a ball of light heading back up you know i, I couldn't see a structured craft at that point i just saw a light so um 
and that's just my memory of it. I, I've never been able to talk with Palmer since, so I don't know. We never even compared notes about it. Um, I, found it that in, I, oh, I, I found that interesting in, in the book that you said he, you and Palmer never mentioned it again. No, you know, he uh, after it went in, it went up into the stars, I was, I remember my first words were, oh, it's, it's blended with the stars, I can't see it anymore. And um, Palmer looked at me and I looked at him and he said, do you want to call it in? And I said, hell no, <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, that's just a career ender right there, you know. And I, I at yeah. that point, I had no ambitions to get out of the U.S. Air Force. I'd been treated well and I was real happy with my job and everything. Um, so, um, yeah, so after that, he never... He and I never talked about it. What did you see? Did you see this or that? He went back to work, and I stayed on the post till the next morning. And uh, it was just—it was rather bizarre that we didn't talk about it. I guess, but yeah. I, I don't, we were traumatized. I, I don't know. No explanation on that one. Yeah. Well, I want to get into the the trauma that resulted. But uh, first of all, you mentioned tunnel—excuse <coughs> me—tunnel vision. So you mean you were fixated on the object? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. And yeah, do and you yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I can only liken it. I've been in a lot of uh, high adrenaline situations, especially a lot of crashes, racing motorcycles and that sort of thing. And you, you definitely get tunnel vision. You're, you're hearing, it was like one of the f- first firefight I got in, it, I would think it would be extremely loud, but my ears kind of shut off and I was able to, uh, you know, hear what was going on and finally function. But it, it was just tunnel vision and um, your hearing gets altered. When you have an adrenaline rush, that's typically what happens. Yeah, I've been in a couple of situations like that too. I imagine. Yeah. yeah. W- would you consider uh, your experience involving missing time? Because you know, in the woods, Peniston and Burroughs were talking about that, that uh, during the initial uh, incidents the month before. Would you? Do you think you had a missing time experience? Well, I, I, I never looked at my watch, so I, I don't. I can't say for sure. Okay, yeah, that would have been the clue. Yeah. Yeah. So that you know. So I can't verify that, but yeah. but it just seems odd. All of a sudden, this ship was halfway up the road, then it was over my head, and then it went from over my head to my right hand side, and it was hundreds of yards mm-hmm. away. And I just I do not remember that. Ben, that's the same road we were on when we were there. Oh yes, I remember. It was very strange. Very we felt like something was following us. We had other a couple of other people with us, and some local listeners were you know met up with us, and because uh, we spoke in Woodbridge the next night, but. Uh, it was very strange, very strange. Uh, so in any case, um, I find interesting your description, uh, which you just gave, and it's also in the book, of, of a fog or mist-like substance around this this craft. Um, do you have any explanation for that? Because we do. No, no. <laughs> no I, sure, I sure don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'd be interested. But, you know, I, I looked at a picture of a, somebody did a drawing of a UFO, and I thought, well, you know, I'm saying it's it was cigar shaped, but if it was fogged up, maybe I was just seeing a kind of a side view of it or something, and maybe it seemed like it was cigar shaped because the rest was covered up with fog or mist. Yeah, or whatever. possibly. Uh, in our opinion, we see this in ghostly phenomena, sometimes cryptids, and certainly with UFOs. And, you know, if this is the correct explanation, um, you you know our theories. You've been on the show a lot, and you help us out. Uh, you know, the multiverse thing uh, and, and the, uh, the the plasma charge membranes between parallel worlds that physicists actually talk about, uh, and may, maybe that that's how you will see very often a, a ghost, uh, quote unquote, as a glowing figure as opposed to uh, just somebody standing there. And so it may, might have been the same thing in your case. But, you know, again, who knows? Yeah. So 
what did this do to your life? Well, <laughs> um, immediately it didn't do anything other than I felt in, like internally I just felt kind of betrayed. Like, wow, these things really exist. Everybody's been lying to me. You know, I, you know, I mean, I grew up a, a you know good Catholic boy and went to church and everything. And I'm thinking, well, you know, the church says they don't exist. My parents say they don't exist. My commanders say they don't exist. But yet I'm looking at this thing. Yeah. So. You know, a little confusion there. Um, but later on, after I had talked with Larry, I generally got concerned for my safety. Um, and, I, and I explained. Yeah, it's Larry three, Warren yeah. you're mentioning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Larry Warren. Yeah. yeah, he came in and talked to me. And he talked to me about how they had gotten uh, basically abducted, um, not by the UFOs, but by in the intelligence world. And uh, were interrogated and all this stuff that happened. And uh, I, I was greatly concerned for my for my safety, and at a certain point, I noticed that I was being tailed, and I actually confronted the two people that were following me after the third time I caught them. And uh, I, like I said, I, I just I just felt overwhelmed and just so out of sort. Like I got to get out of here, you know. Yeah. And uh, and then it, I don't know. It, my whole attitude towards life and reality and my perception of what was going on changed a lot, and I just kind of had a. Um, I, I know we're on radio, I can't swear, but I just had basically a, an effort type of attitude. I just didn't care anymore. Um, you know, I just I just figured the rules didn't apply anymore, and I just didn't want to be a part of the established world, and I just went out and did my own thing. Yeah. So. Well, we, we've talked about this over dinner a few times or lunch, yeah. uh, you know, that, that many of the dangerous things you did later in life may have been... Uh, the way may have been paved for those by this experience in, in a in a way. Oh yeah, I, if I never saw, if I was never there that night, then I think I would have had a nice career in the Air Force and I would have been retired and life would have been good. You know? Retired as a general, no doubt. Yeah, I don't know about a general, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> maybe maybe a master sergeant or something. But, yeah. Do but, you? Uh, f- uh, no, go ahead, Steve. Oh no, no, go ahead. All right. Do you feel that your life, your early life, which you also describe in the book, is quite quite interesting and rather similar to mine, um, because it was very interesting to me, do you feel that that at any point sort of led up to the Air Force, up to RAF Bentwaters or Woodbridge, and then up to this this event, this experience, as sort of a pivotal um, point in your life? Well, yeah, well, originally, um, we, I think we talked about this before, was I, I actually wanted to be a licensed practical nurse. I yeah. worked in a nursing home, and I really thought that was a great career, and I was all geared up. All my high school studies were geared towards that, health classes and everything I needed. And uh, I was going to go into the nursing school, which um, back then, you know, Jimmy Carter was president, and the economy wasn't doing good, and um, it, it was just a depressed time. So they closed the nursing school because of budget cuts. So that was kind of like my first, uh, my first feeling of betrayal, I guess, in my life was, you know, I just had the rug pulled out from under me. So I was a little, a little upset over that. And, um, and then I had to try and figure out what I was going to do with my life at that point. And I, I didn't have the wherewithal to go anywhere else because this was like a local school. I literally could have walked to school. It was a mile and a half from my house. Um, so, um, at that point, I just decided, okay, well, my father's in the Air Force Reserves, and he's a police officer, and all right, maybe I'll do something along those lines. So I went and talked to a recruiter in the Air Force, and uh, he showed me a short video on security police and law enforcement. I thought, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'd get you know, my father's approval, him being a police officer. So I, uh, I signed up and 
yeah, I, I ended up going in as a police officer, which my mother uh, actually had to sign because I was only 17. Oh, yeah. And she and she said, well, I'm surprised you chose that. I, I would have thought you would have gone in as a medic or something, but I, I don't know. I, I just had an attitude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you described that in no uncertain terms in the, in the book, too. So, But yeah. it's, it's very, very interesting to read. Now, the, can you talk about some of the other life events that, that may have been, I don't know, uh, inspired or, or perpetrated by, by this, this experience and the attitude change that it made? You were a soldier of fortune? Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, now they call them military contractors, I yeah, guess. But, yeah, and, uh, a, bit, a bit more euphemistic, yeah. I was definitely hiring myself out for for pay. I mean, and, yeah. and I made a conscious decision. I remember sitting on the corner of my bed saying, okay, God, I'm done with you. Um, I'm turning my back on you, and I'm going to go do this. And I actually sat and did a little mental hardening of my heart because I knew I was going to see some bad stuff and um, just made a conscious decision to go wage war on my my fellow man, you know. Yeah. I, I really got into a real, real dark place for about five years. I mean, I, I was really in love with death. I mean, yeah. for lack of a better term. So, Th- this leads in, into uh, one thing that we wanted to ask, and that's uh, what it did to your spirituality. And you just began to describe this. You know, most of us grow up in very comfortable, at least in this country, very, very comfortable uh, religions or or things that. You might not entirely like, but you know, nevertheless, that they they uh, they're they're grounding for us. And then an experience li- like that, and I've seen it happen with many people, uh, end up um, kind of turning you into something entirely different that you're, you wouldn't recognize yourself from previous uh, incarnation, so to speak. Yeah, that's that's a definite truism right there. Yeah, um, yeah, it just blew my belief system apart, basically, and yeah. I, I just figured okay no right no wrong i can do whatever i want no consequences you know so um i just twisted off and my my new god was green and had pictures of presidents and statements on it yeah you know (laughs) in a way though uh, and you know i had some of the same training obviously but it was very different reasons and places and everything else uh Mm -hmm. and uh wasn't wasn't my focus uh for very long but there you once described to me that you would be when you were on a mission, you would be the the, the grass blowing in the wind. Oh, yeah. oh, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that I recognize that. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but that that in itself is almost a spiritual exercise. Yeah, yeah. Um, how to, how to become invisible when the enemy is looking right at you, yes. basically. Yeah. Well, we yeah, were told I, just be where you're not expected to be, and that's that's the first half of invisibility. Right, right. Um, yeah, I've, I've snuck into a few camps, literally. I want to say 15 feet from from people sitting around a fire talking, and they never saw me sneak in and never saw me sneak out. Yeah, yeah. But trying to get in there and listen to see what they were saying, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I'm it, it, the whole. You know, there's. I actually ent- um, did an interview with somebody. They were talking about the sixth sense and um, coming up behind somebody and burning your thoughts into the back of their head. They'll turn around every time. Yeah. So that's right. when we do our training, we would. Um, some of our training, we would line people up and they would have a can of CS gas. So if they heard you, they could turn around and spray you in the face with it. So you would have to try and sneak up and put a rope around their neck was the exercise to, to you know, use a garrote and take them out. Yeah. Uh, so um, everybody would go up and fail initially. It was it was kind of comical. They would all get up, get sprayed, and nobody ever got a rope around anybody's neck. But then our instructor, um, Frank Camper, who was running this mercenary school, um, 
he said, okay, now, now try it this way. When you go up, stop burning your thoughts into the back of this guy's head because he can feel it and just become one with nature. Think that, you know, you're the grass, you're the wind, you know, just become part of nature. You're invisible. You're not there. And boy, the, uh, the rate of success of putting people's, uh, putting a rope around somebody's neck after that went up exponentially. Well, the fact it, that you it, are uh, very thin that doesn't uh, hurt with coming and going either. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually had kind of a knack well, for that. Well, I'm joking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but, but yeah. it was kind of weird. I actually had a real good knack for sneaking up and sneaking in and out of places. That was kind of my thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're going to take our bottom of the hour break. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's gorgeous Blackstone River Valley and our amazing guest today, Steve LaPlume. And we'll be right back, so stick with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Hello and welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. It's WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM. And we're talking today with Steve LaPlume, who is uh, usually a guest co-host on the show. Uh, but uh, before we get back to talking about the Rendlesham Forest case and its effect on his life, and it's, it's a, the effect of paranormal experiences on, on uh, the lives of all experiences, we have our very dear friend of all of us, including Steve, Susan Spooler, who's with us. Susan, how are you doing today? Good morning, Paul. How are you? Oh, uh, certainly better than nothing. So, <laughs> so you got some uh, some news for us, eh? Yes, we're not having the Greater New England UFO film, uh, conference this year, but we are having the Greater New England UFO um, Film Festival of UFO and Bigfoot movies at the Wilton Town Hall Theater in Wilton, New Hampshire. And I'm starting to put the list of movies on my website of www.newenglandufo.com. I can give you a, um, a taste of some of the movies we'll be... Having, um, sure. Uh, yeah, a rough connection and, there. Um, well, we may better. be playing the blob. We're playing uh, the day the Earth stood still. We'll be playing quite a few of uh, Alexander Petikoff that he has had oh. um, pertaining to Betty and Barney Hill um, and other UFO uh, events. So um, we're we're out, uh, and we're also you'll you'll be doing your radio show on the Sunday. Uh, uh, the yes. event is October 9th to the 11th. Yeah, that'll be on the and, 11th. We'll be doing it in, in this usual time slot. Right, and so at the noon time, and um, in the, the Wilton Town Hall Theater, their website is www.wiltontownhalltheater.com, t h e a t r e dot com, and they used to do vaudeville. Um, in Wilton, there's two, there's two screens. Oh, gee. So one, will, so one of them will ha- one has a, a state nice stage uh, with velvet curtains, um, and then we uh, will have Bigfoot in one screen, and we'll have UFO stuff on the other screen, um, and we'll try, uh, lots of surprises uh, for the event. 
and uh, as I said, I'm, I'm loading information as I get it on the uh, on my NewEnglandUFO.com website. Excellent. Well, I'll be there for the whole thing, and Ben uh, was going to make his efforts uh, to be there for at least uh, some of it, particularly the show, of course. Oh yeah, I'll 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 make every effort to be there. I am I am a fan of film. Oh yes. Having oh wonderful. Been to film school, yeah. So very good. Uh, and again, would you give the website once again, please, Susan? Sure, uh, www.newenglandufo.com. Very good, and, and we have links to that on the, on our show website yep. as well. Right, and I'm constantly adding new information on there. Very um, good for everybody. So okay, so, yeah. well, and Susan will be calling. Yeah. Oh, good, and you'll be calling in uh, probably each week between now and then yeah. to remind everybody. Absolutely. Great, very good, absolutely excellent. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. Looking forward to seeing you and, um, and honoring your 50 years of the paranormal. Oh, well, I, I don't know. I feel like it or not. <laughs> you know, was that mean for how old? I am? Anyway, I do appreciate that, Susan, very, very much. And we look sure, forward absolutely. to seeing you. Sure, absolutely. Okay. We're supposed to be our keynote speaker, so we're honoring you in other ways. So okay. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Talk right. to you soon. Take care. Very good. Bye-bye. Right, bye. Bye. Okay, so so let's get back to our guest here, Steve LaPlume. Uh, now, Steve... Um, before we move on to other subjects, how did you come out of that dark period? And how did it affect your attitude? I mean, did you change your attitude toward your UFO experience, or, or how, to, how did you do that? No, you know what? Um, after that UFO experience, I, I, I did an interview with Chuck DeCaro with CNN, which, um, oddly enough, I was sitting in a hotel room with a bunch of mercenaries getting ready to go to Nicaragua one time, and that aired. <laughs> so it's a little embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, um, but as far as getting out of it, I, I actually, and I'm, one thing about this book is I'm very honest and I'm very open. I really yes, you are. Yeah. Um, so I, I was doing some acid one night, doing some LSD, and finally realized, hey, I could probably get killed doing this. And um, I had an incident where I was getting set up to be, basically be executed. Um, and, and I covered that in the book a little bit. It was just a lot of intrigue with intelligent I don't even know how to put that without getting in trouble. But um, well, don't get yourself in trouble. Yeah, I glossed it over in the book. Anyways, um, so once I realized I really didn't know which side I was on and who was who, and you know some of the people I had worked with, um, you know, it had set me up to get hit. Then um, I just decided, okay, it's time to get out of this and, and do that. And uh, one of the biggest issues I had was I was getting rid of um, all the stuff that I had. I had, let's say, firearms I probably shouldn't have had. So I, uh, I destroyed them, but I had this one pistol that was uh, um, that was not illegal. Um, I bought it down in Georgia. Anyways, long story short, I ended up selling it to somebody. They used it in a crime, and that came back on me. And um, when that came back on me, I, I ended up having to uh, had, had to leave the New England area for a little while. Uh, um, I went out west and lived over there in California for a while and stayed under the radar. And... Um, and then after a few months, I um, finally I got my license over there. And as soon as I got my license, I had the FBI and the ATF knocking on my door, basically. Um, so I got I got all my legal stuff squared away. But on my trip from uh, from the East Coast to the West Coast, I was riding a motorcycle. And it took me about six days. And uh, me and God had a big, long talk, <laughs> six days' worth of talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, I just was like, okay, I'm done with that part of my life. Um, you know, I didn't make any money at it. I didn't get where I wanted to be. You know, so um, you know, how about the white picket fence in the family? I, you know, maybe I ought to try that and just become human again. Because 
those five years where I was working as a mercenary, I really didn't consider myself human, you know, as far as my uh, status socially, you know, I guess is a good way to put it. So, so I got out to California. I got myself established. Um, started racing motorcycles out there because apparently I'm a, an adrenaline junkie because I, <laughs> I really like the thrill. Yeah. So uh, started racing motorcycles. And then you said you didn't know what super bikes were. Um, super bikes are uh, street bikes that are uh, just basically hopped up a lot. Oh. Uh, and we're, we're the idiots that you see going around the track real fast with our knees on the ground. <laughs> yeah. I've seen yeah. pictures of you doing. As matter, yeah. I have to mention that in the book is is a marvelous picture gallery with photos from uh, various points in your life, including that. And I found yeah. them. Fa- I hadn't seen most of those before, and I found it fascinating to look at. Yeah, I've got I've got all sorts of video and pictures of me racing over the years. But actually, I think I got a little faster when I got older because I didn't care as much. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so, um, so moving on then, and, and you you've essentially found God. And, and that's what pulled you out, or, or refound God, I guess. Refound, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, I was a Christian, I was a Catholic when I grew up, and everything. But when I got out to California, um, um, just the way things worked, the guy that was working on my bike was a Christian, and um, he invited me to go to his outreach, which um, I, I never really understood what an outreach was till I went to one, and it's all walks of life. There were some real freaky looking people in this meeting, <laughs> and I thought, what would I get myself into? You know? Yeah. But. Uh, but the pastor was real, uh, he was young, he was very articulate, and um, I don't know, he touched my heart, and I went up and uh, dedicated my life to God, and been a Christian ever since. So, okay, well, it sounds like a... But I, not that I haven't faltered, I've definitely... Well, well everyone does. Okay, yeah. excellent. Well, now, uh, when it come, let's get back to the UFO subject in the sense of, huh. in a general sense. Do you feel that attitudes... In uh, maybe you're not is in touch with the military, but I'm still in touch with a lot of old uh, friends. Uh, mm-hmm. That the attitudes toward UFOs have changed from the 1980s, from the Randlesham case, when you know uh, you described being um, um, made fun of, or, or people were, were you know almost ostracized for having reported these experiences. Do you think that's changed at all? Um, well, I guess you know with the uh, with the development of the space force, I guess it, it has to change. You yeah. know. People are looking at stuff out there, and I think just in general, people are becoming a little more aware of, hey, you know, what, what was that in the sky I saw? Or, you know, how come the, how come the NASA feed got cut off when this thing suddenly entered the picture? You know, I mean, I think people are questioning it a little more. Um, and in the military, I mean, what was it? The Department of the Navy now has come out with a, yeah. a process of yeah. actually reporting. Which well, so they're showing ad nauseum on television, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't have a TV, so I don't. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> good man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's fair. It's probably for the best, if, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I, I like keeping my mind clear of garbage. So. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not so much news as it is entertainment. Uh, yeah. That, that being that being said, there's this sort of recurring theme of of um, sort of how how we view reality that we that's kind of woven its way through through this entire discussion, right? So. Yeah. Yep. We all we all have these these preconceived notions about existence, and you know we all think that everything around it kind of enforces whatever it is. You know, all of us are guilty of that. And one thing that that's sort of become more and more clear over the years, especially with our our research, your experiences, and everyone's experiences, really, is that it, it can the paranormal in and of itself can be dismissed. Right from the human experience, it's like, oh well, hey, you know, this person saw a ghost over here. Oh, this guy saw a UFO. Okay, well, whatever. It's 
it doesn't it doesn't affect them. It's sort of this 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 sort of portion of the environment that happens every so often, and we see it, and that that's all it is. It's just some benign thing that happens. And as time has gone on, we've seen that the effects of it are far-reaching, and it sort of either is a catalyst for a great change in life, you know, whether the event does it or we do it to ourselves. You know, the the sort of breaking of the fabric of our understanding of, of everything, really, is is all tied up into that. And this discussion is really brought a couple of things to mind for me which I've I've been hence why I've been so quiet I've been listening to everything that's been said to get to this point so there are two sort of notions that I, I found super fascinating one was the the notion of comfort that was brought up that we are comforted by things we understand quote unquote and we are comforted by you know our, our cushy lives you know technology food all, all of that and <clears throat> when something happens to expose us to something that we are not used to or or something that is different, it can change us in ways that we don't expect. And I think your journey in in, in life is, is a perfect example of that. That this this event led to led you down a path of you know, just something that, that no one would ever expected. Probably you would never have expected. <laughs> no. Yeah. And this idea of being human, right? Like, what does it mean to be human? You know, if if these belief systems that we have sort of reinforce how we view the world, how we view ourselves, essentially, right? When an event, you know, such as see, seeing something that dis, dis, just completely destroys your your outlook on existence or that barrier, you know, that kind of keeps you safe from the world, in a sense, how does it define you, Right. And so after all of this, Steve, after mm-hmm. everything I've just said, yeah. how do you define you in your life now? Um, extremely open-minded is the best way I could put it. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's so many different theories about everything that happened, you know, during that time period over there at, at Bentwaters and Woodbridge. Um, it, I'm just open-minded to all of it. I, I don't know what I saw that night. I'll probably never know what I saw that night, unless for some reason there's some sort of disclosure. But uh, I mean, you know, Paul, I know I know that you're very much uh, in tune with the whole multiverse, um, and I'm I'm kind of in tune with that as well. I, I mean, I, it just seems to me there's a lot more out there than what we're led to believe. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Would you say that you're uncomfortable, or that you're comfortable with the uncomfortable? Oh no, I'm. I'm comfortable in my own skin and with what's going on and stuff yeah like i said i'm just very open-minded you know i i've got my own belief system i you know i still truly believe in that there is a god you know mm-hmm. uh it might not be uh, a white guy on the cloud like everybody you know, exactly yeah <laughs> type of thing well, um for, for me god's just like the ultimate love in the universe mm-hmm. so yeah well we have uh, three questions from uh, our very faithful questioner uh, Peter in Bogota, Colombia. So Ben if you take these uh, Oh sure thing. One uh, typically three. we get to these earlier in the show. Um sorry about that. <laughs> so uh Peter writes to us uh, in a previous interview you said you were followed by two men with German accents who were driving a black Lincoln uh, with New York plates in England. Did you ever figure out who they were and why Germans would be following you? No. No, I never figured that out um but these were definitely the for the Back then, we used to call them spooks, um, the intel people. These two spooks were following me, 
And um, like I said, I confronted him, and I never saw him again after that. And uh, trust me, I was looking for him. Um, the fact that they were speaking German, um, that's just what the barmaid told me. I never heard him even speak. When I talked with them, they never, when I talked with that one individual, um, he never said a word to me. I just told him, hey, you guys are lousy tales. You know, you might as well stop because I'm on to you. And I turned and walked away from him. So I just called him on the fact that they were tailing me. And I, I'd never seen or heard from him since. Fair. Mm. Hey, it worked, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you scared him. <laughs> uh, so he goes on to ask, you said that sodium pentothal was uh, being used on other witnesses at the base. Was it used on you? Why or why not? Um, no, it was never used on me, and I was never debriefed. And I think it was because we never reported the second sighting. Um, yeah. I think if we would have reported that, we'd have had a little more interaction with the intel folks. Um, but since we never reported it and we kept our mouth shut, you know, it wasn't on their radar, I guess. But I never got, I never got abducted. I never, I mean, my, my whole, my whole debriefing was when I came off duty, my, um, my sergeant said, hey, would you see out there? I told him, he said, oh, okay, well, you missed the bus. You need to go catch a ride back to the, to the barracks. So, I mean, nobody even paid attention to me. Hmm. Uh, and his final question is, have you heard of any other NATO bases that have experienced similar UFO activity? Um, no, I haven't. But, you know, oddly enough, um, I don't really follow the whole UFO. You know, after this incident, I, it wasn't like I became a UFO researcher or was really interested in it. To me, that was like such a bad point in my life. I wanted nothing to do with it. I wanted nothing to do with the Air Force anymore. And, you know, like I said, I just twisted off and did my own thing. And, um I never paid any attention whether there was anything else going on on any other NATO bases. Well, the book is uh, Redemption, I should say, Rendlesham to Redemption. What prompted you to write the book, Steve? Um, you know, oddly enough, it, it was basically age, and um, I'd gotten pretty sick here about a year or so ago, and I thought, well, if I'm going to say anything, and, and there was a lot of... A lot of people back and forth, all, all the witnesses hating each other and, you know, a lot of infighting. And, I mean, I, I just figured I, I just wanted to say what I had to say, get it on the record for a historical matter. And then if anybody involved with the case has anything to say, they can say it now where they're still alive and I'm still alive. You know, I, I didn't want to be the guy to say, okay, here's what happened, but, you know, nobody else is alive. Because I'm, I'm one of the youngest guys on the whole the whole situation. So, because um, I, I just turned 18 at the time. Yeah. So, um, you know, like Colonel Halt, I think is up in his. I think he's eighty now. So it not um, look it, but yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, time flies and you're having fun. Uh, or yeah. lack thereof. But. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, so there was there was the whole purging of getting it off my chest and getting. You know, everybody's told me, "Oh, you ought to write a book. You ought to write a book." So I just finally did. You know, and I never really wanted to. I just felt compelled that I, I probably ought to. You know, I probably owe it. You know, I guess to society to explain what happened and. Um, what I saw and get my take on it. And the only reason I actually injected myself in this whole case was because uh, people were saying, oh, well, the officers knew what was going on and this and that. I'm guaranteeing you, the officers had no clue that night what was going on. <laughs> they were as clueless as the rest of us. So maybe they were brought into the fold later on, but that night when they came out during my sighting, they didn't seem to have any idea what was going on any more than I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. So now that you've you've written the book, um, how how are you feeling about everything now? Um, actually, a little nervous and probably embarrassed because, like I said, I really opened up a lot on this book, and um, yeah, I, I 
I talked about a lot of embarrassing stuff, but I felt that's the only way I could write this book was to be honest and open and as, as true as I could be, you know? Well, when we first had you on the show 10 years ago, uh, we liked you immediately. Well, you were still in China at the time. And we yeah. became friends. And when, when you came back here, we, you know, we started hanging out as much as the distance would permit. And, you know, with, uh, Ronnie LeBlanc at, uh, Lemister State Forest, that sort of thing, you checking stuff out there and all kinds of, of things. And, uh, then you became a co-host on the show. So, so we, we kind of have uh, watched your evolution over the 10 years, you know, as friends. And, uh, it seemed as though you, you that there was a point in the beginning, you were reluctant to talk about a lot of this, and then you became more comfortable with it. You were on the show, you were on some panels with us. And, uh, it, it was a good thing to see, you know, um, that you were, uh, becoming more comfortable, as you say, in your own skin. And it's wonderful to see this book now. That's just my personal thought on this. As far as um, something that you brought up that's very important, and again, not, not to dwell on this, but and, and we brought this up during our, our series, uh, ten, uh, it was 10 years ago, but it went into 2011 and 2012. Uh, we did over 16 hours on the air in this case with the witnesses, including yourself, that it seemed as though the bad feeling that resulted from this, the, the tension, the politics that really divided people is something that to us is is never good. In our opinion, I mean, the the experiences of this kind should bring people together, not drive them apart. Do you think at this point that the fact that people were so divided by this case, and, and others too, was deliberate on the part of whether it be the intelligence community, whom uh, Colonel Halt said on this show had, quote, messed with people, unquote, uh, particularly the ones who were there in the December sightings. Uh, I mean, what's your feeling on it? Do you think this is deliberate, or it's just it's human nature, or, or are we missing something, or what? Boy, I, I really don't have an answer for that one. <laughs> yeah, well, neither do uh, we. That's why we asked the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably the open-ended question of the century, right? Yeah. Um, now I don't know. I mean, I know when it comes to the intel people messing with people and stuff like that. Uh, it seems to me that there is. They're as unknowing as the rest of us, or maybe I, I don't know. You, there's two sides to that coin, I guess. Yeah. You know, either either they want to know what you know so they can um, somehow you know put a damper on the whole situation, or they're generally interested because they don't have a clue. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, as an author now, a new author, uh, you are probably aware that you're going to be uh, in the crosshairs of uh, interviewers and uh, various yep. uh, demands to, to speak and do book signings, and uh, you're uh, prepared <laughs> to accept the grueling schedule that that, that implies? Uh, yeah, this is actually um, my first interview this week, and I've got two more already lined up. Oh, one all right. For, one for Friday, and yeah, I'm already getting requests. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I... I'm, I, I I'm mentally prepared for that. That's fine. That's great. Well, Steve, I think uh, it's it's wonderful to see uh, this, this new book, and uh, we encourage people to to check it out. So tell people where uh, tell us about the book, where people can find out more, and where they can get it. Yeah, I self-published, so it's on Amazon. Uh, you just can go to Amazon.com and look up uh, Rendlesham to Redemption, and it'll be in the book their bookstore. And it's on sale now. It went live, I think, Saturday. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's on there. We checked it. Yep. And remember, we yep. have a picture of the cover on our websites and Facebook pages. And uh, unless Ben has another question, uh, I have one more. What does the future hold for you? Do you think? Oh boy, <laughs> I don't know. Um, 
None right of us now, does. Just, but right now, I'm just being a gentleman farmer and trying to live in peace. Um, but I, I do like writing, and um, I'm planning, and I'm actually right now just continue writing. I've got a lot of short stories I wanted to write and maybe make a collection of short stories in a book. Great. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Ben? Uh, no, I'm... I'm okay, I'm, great conversation. Yeah. Steve, uh, you're always our dear friend, and we'll look forward to having you on as a co-host again soon. It's more fun to have you in the studio, but COVID still being what it is, we, we do it at a distance, but uh, it's still fun. And, um, again, congratulations on the book. Yeah, And, uh, if you want to hang out, uh, with us, uh, you're going to do the quote at the end of the show, right? Um, yeah, I gotta find the quote. So okay. <laughs> well, go, we only have a few minutes. We won't Perfect. bother you. you got, we won't you got, bother you during the announcements. You got plenty uh, of time. Yeah, okay, very good. Alright. Thanks, uh, Steve LaPlume, everybody. Renaissance man. Alright, Ben, uh, take us away here. Uh, okie dokie. So, the Greater New England UFO Conference will take place at the Wilton Town Hall Theater on Saturday and Sunday, October 10th and 11th. Uh, because of COVID restrictions, this event uh, has a limited audience and will be a Bigfoot and UFO film festival. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know why I said that. It's three separate syllables, but I did. Uh, no speakers and no vendor tables. Uh, we will broadcast the show live. From the venue on Sunday with uh, special guest Nigel Watson, British UFO researcher, and there will be a private dinner to honor my dad for his 50 years of paranormal research. Well done, Dad. Oh dear. Well, uh, I, I don't. I'm, I don't do well with uh, praise. I, I don't know. Right. But uh, <laughs> do do you want me to insult you instead? No, 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 no. That's all right. Uh, anyway, the uh, website is newenglandufo.com. Uh, our good friend Susan Spooler, the organizer, uh, called in earlier and. Uh, if you're listening to the recording of this show, then you can uh, hear her uh, do that. But that was um, uh, something that I think uh, we should point out again, NewEnglandUFO.com, and it's Wilton, not Wilson. There was kind of a rough connection there, and it might have come across like Wilson. It's Wilton, New Hampshire. I think and she might have uh, been, been looking down or moving away from the phone to read. Oh, it's not like a bad kid. Right? Anyway. I mean, it happens to the best of us. Yeah, so Wilton Town Hall Theater. Yes. And that's uh, October uh, 10th and 11th. Saturday and Sunday. Uh, oh, actually, also Friday night. Uh, yes. The uh, 9th, 10th, yeah. The Bigfoot and UFO. All right. Uh, the following week, uh, the uh, Connecticut U- Western Connecticut UFO Conference will take place via Facebook Live on Saturday and Sunday, October 17th and 18th. This is a free annual event sponsored by the Danbury, Connecticut Public Library. Along with ourselves, uh, speakers will include our own Shane Searway and Mark D'Antonio, uh, I don't know if Linda Zimmerman's going to be there, but there is a substitute for her. Mike Panicello of Connecticut MUFON and more. Uh, on Sunday, we will simulcast our show. We can figure out the technicalities of it from here at WON Studios with special guest Dr. Bill Burns of the UFO Hunters TV series, New York Times bestselling author and publisher of UFO Magazine. And additionally, uh, we have word that New- the New England Parafest will take place on April 10th and 11th. I know it's kind of kind of far out in uh, well, really when you think about it well you know i i time is relative uh right. <laughs> mean uh, that they that this uh will we will do a live broadcast uh, of this show with a panel of the speakers on sunday the 11th more information will be forthcoming and check out our books along with those of our other co-hosts and as a matter of fact we're gonna get steve's book up on our website too because he's a co-host uh at our show website behind the paranormal.com 
Well, you can also find uh, out more about the show, our history, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us, along with some of our 800, actually, it's more like 900 uh, free recorded shows from our 12-plus, well, yeah, 12-plus years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And that whole Rendlesham series we, we re- referred to earlier in the show uh, in our conversation with Steve, uh, that that's all... Uh, present on the uh, a lot of the, most of the podcast platforms, iTunes, etc. Mm. Uh, look back 2010, 2011, and, and speaking 2012. Of podcast platforms, uh, past shows back to late 2009 are also available on major podcast platforms, including uh, YouTube, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, the Paranormal Radio app, and more. Uh, soon, we will have all shows back to 2008 uploaded to all these applications uh, if you if you have the ability to give us a little bit of a rating or uh, subscribe to us on any of those platforms it helps us uh, keep up with the podcast and uh, our, we we call it our main website but newenglandghosts.com is out there i think it was designed in the 1990s and it's currently being redesigned but it has it's still up has a lot of case histories and stuff that people might be very interested in uh, there are links to a number of charities on the show, or the check the charity page at behindtheparanormal.com, and we'd really appreciate it if you would help them, because they are, uh, these are all people we know who run these charities, uh, USA Cares and, and many more. So, Ben, what do we have uh, up for next week? So, next week, September 27th, uh, we welcome two new guests, uh, Pam Nance and Ashley Field, a mother and stepdaughter ghost investigation team who use progressive theories very similar to our own. Yeah, we use the progressive without uh, any uh, political uh, overtones. <laughs> That's sort of our yeah, term. Like for scientific it. progress. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I think they're kind of like the closest thing to us that I've run into. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, it's kind yeah. of funny, you know. It's, yeah. Hey, we'll 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 see. You know? Yeah, like, yeah. Do, do something little 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 different. Well, I had a very good conversation with both of them. Uh, you weren't able to participate that day, but on on Skype, and we the, the theories are very interesting and they're very similar to our own. So anyway. So we'll uh, leave you today with a quote offered by our dear friend and guest, Steve LaPlume. Uh, Steve, take it away. Sure. Um, this quote is actually in the back of my book, and it's by Confucius, and I thought it was fitting. It says, there are three methods of gaining wisdom. The first is reflection, which is the highest. The second is limitation, which is the easiest. And the third is experience, which is the bitterest. There you go. Mm. And I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.